there's a quote that I love from Woody Allen, which is 80% of life is just showing up. But I always add to that, but it's showing up at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Right. So you'll see people that they were in the right company at the right time. And they did financially really well and others that could be really smart, but they're not in the right place. Right. And then there's this other phrase that, you know, I'd rather be lucky than smart. Absolutely the case. But being smart is about putting yourself on the, on the right path of luck. Right. You got to put yourself in front of the wave. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you can be efficient about seeing the big picture where the waves are breaking uh, where opportunities are and put yourself in front of those, you're going to do better because the, the small amount of energy you spend has bigger impact. Hey, my name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about their meditation, mindfulness, and yoga practices and how those practices help them tap into creative flow. I interviewed Bill Tai today. Uh, we talked about some really interesting stuff, including his windsurfing practice and how that is a form of meditation. Um, I've been finding a lot that uh, people have a lot of preconceived notions of what meditation is. Uh, And in this uh, interview, we found out that anything can be a meditation, including kite surfing, because something as extreme as kite surfing can bring you into the present moment better than any sitting meditation ever could. Uh, So I invite you to open your mind as to what meditation is so that you can find the right meditation practice for you. And of course, if you like this podcast, uh, please subscribe on iTunes by finding Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. Uh, thanks and have a great day. Yeah, my name is Bill Tai. I'm a venture capitalist by profession. Uh, I've been a sponsored athlete in kiteboarding. I'm an adjunct professor at, a, at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. And I also uh, help create a nonprofit that supports ocean conservation called Acti Global. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about kiteboarding and you were saying kind of how it uh, brings you into the current moment better than any of your other activities. And why, why is that? Yeah. So uh, I do spend a a lot of time on the water, particularly in the summer months. And um, kiteboarding is one of those things that, that just clears your head and allows you to set priorities while you're on the water. It may not look like that when you're on the water. I think uh, to the casual observer, you know, kiteboarding is a beautiful sport to see. I think when you're on the water in the moment, it's um, a gigantic multivariate equation where you're basically um, putting together everything from the tension on your lines to the you know size and shape and structure of your kite to currents on the water and variability in wind. And you're kind of like weaving that all together into one ride mm-hmm. where if any one of those variables is out of place for a nanosecond, it's flat. <laughs> so, but I think uh, you enter sort of a flow state where everything is coming together and you stop thinking mm-hmm. and you just start processing. Mm-hmm. And when, when I'm in that moment, my, my head is just really clear and I can think about other stuff. And does that state then extend into like after you go kite surfing, you're working or whatever, does that state then extend into that work as well? Absolutely. I think it, it um, I think a short session, you know, even 15, 20 minutes, uh, but if I can ride for like 45 minutes or an hour for the, for the whole evening, typically the wind comes up in the San Francisco area around one o'clock, you know, like kind of mid to late afternoon. And if I'm on the water, it's going to be sort of, you know, three, four, five o'clock. If I could ride for an hour, the rest of my day is great because I'm just totally calm and at peace and only the things that matter break through all the noise of the day and all that shit that really doesn't matter. You stop thinking about it. 
That's really interesting. Do you think it has anything to do with kind of this idea of like playing with death or, or that injury or kind of, cause it's an extreme sport. Is, is it, are, do people injure themselves a lot? Um, you know, I think it's, it's a, it does happen. I think it happened a lot more in the beginning of the sport. And, and then I think over time, the equipment design evolved so that there were uh, ways to release yourself from the gear. Uh, a lot of the injuries in the beginning happened, I think, because the equipment was designed to, at, at the request of uh, very athletic types that, that kind of could handle most situations. And all they cared about was if something went wrong, they didn't want to lose their gear. Mm. So you were permanently attached mm. and, and you were attached to gear that, that even if you got knocked out, it was still powered. So mm. that the term teabagging, um, evolved in that era where you were like a tea bag on the end of the string getting splatted on the water even if you're unconscious you know so so over time uh, the gear now has little red balls on it all over the place so if you pull any one of them it deconstructs and comes off yeah. so you're not tied to the force yeah. uh, and I think also people tend to if they get hurt they tend to get hurt in the beginning when they're learning because they don't have like full control over stuff and then you enter a period where you're kind of cruising. And then, then there's another period where you might get hurt again when you start pushing it because you think you're good. You know, so there's always, there's always a, a, I guess, ego, ego and pain are often interwoven. So if you're zen about it and just in it for the, you know, the ride and not, not for ego, you're going to do fine. Whenever I've gotten hurt, it's because I'm in a photo shoot. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, that's really cool. And... So you, you, you go kiteboarding and then you go work. Um, what, uh, can you, do you reach flow states in your work as well? Yeah, actually, you know, I should, I should describe sort of, uh, my, my daily routine is, um, I, I guess I have the luxury of, of being able to structure a little bit more of the, you know, my daily calendar. And, uh, um, I really do believe that, that exercise and just general fitness or things that give, you know, kind of lead to fitness interwoven with your work are really important for longevity and just clarity of purpose. And uh, I'll intermingle a couple things here, but, you know, I definitely do kite in the afternoons when I can. I start my day with a pretty, uh, pretty rigorous workout regimen. And, and then I run five miles. And, uh, and let me digress a little bit. I read somewhere that Warren Buffett does not calendar meetings at all on his calendar and he, he leaves total flexibility so that he could basically decide real time what's important to spend time on and i think a lot of what society has evolved to in the last you know kind of 50 years is sort of like clutter on a treadmill you know, you're basically on this treadmill and it's meeting after meeting after meeting after call after this after that. And you don't have time. Oh, sorry. You don't have time to process your think. And the clutter ends up dominating your day. So I think it's, it's very important to basically abstract yourself from the noise to decide what really is signal. And so I basically, you know, I wake up early. And I basically do a routine of sit-ups, intermingled sit-ups, push-ups, pull-ups, intermingled with email. Mm. So I basically go over my computer. I'll go do a bunch of sit-ups. I'll look, answer a few of them, you know, do some sit-ups, answer a few of them, do some pull-ups, answer a few of them. And I'm kind of scanning to see which ones do I really need to answer, which ones are important to do. 
And then once I've gotten a few things out of the way that I really had to address at that, you know, in the morning, then uh, I'll go and run five miles. And it's during that five mile run that it, about two and a half miles into the run, I stopped thinking about the stuff that I just did. Mm. And there's open space. Mm -hmm. And it's at that time that I decide on the three things that I need to do mm. that day. And that's it. You know, it's because kind of generally speaking, if you can get a couple important things done every day, that's all you really need to do. Mm. You know, and I sort of, sort of just lay those out, try to knock those down. Mm. And then other stuff will come up during the day that I have to deal with, but some of it will fall forward into the, you know, into the queue. Mm. But I think it's kind of, uh, uh, it's important to, to have the capacity to deal with what's important when it's important mm -hmm. and then the ability to prioritize mm -hmm. what really is important to spend the time on. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, life is a heck of a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. And um, you kind of bring up this idea of that you can ask yourself what is important right now for me to be doing. Are there any kind of other questions that you found very valuable to ask yourself in order to focus down on what's the signal? Yeah, I think, you know, it, obviously the things change from day to day and the time frame of the projects that I'm on varies greatly. There's some things that I'm just starting where I need certain like people around them. There are some projects that are already big that have tactical needs short term. And so I think it's, it's kind of a question of setting the master sort of priority and then drilling down on a few things and the relative waiting that that's always the hard part because I think there are infinite demands on anyone's time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really a question of how do you figure out where to, where to spend it? Um, so did you have to learn how to basically say no to things that weren't, did, was it ever an issue for you to say no, or has it always been pretty easy for you? Uh, it was, it was really hard. I think I, it still is hard, yeah. you know, cause I, I think um, the, I guess if you, you know, once you build up a network and have had some success, a lot of stuff will keep coming to you. And it, it's, it's not linear. It's sort of exponential. The more, the more visible, more successful successes you have, the more stuff comes at you. And, and I, I literally cannot open it. I, I can't, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have enough minutes in a day to actually open every email that I get. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to process. And, and I tend to, you know, people that know me know I'm very friendly and I try to help everybody. So it's hard for me to say no. Yeah. And so I think it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult to say no. But I think 99% of success in life is saying no. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's really, I think, um, I'm going to address, I guess, again, to like a, another totally weird analogy. But I think a lot of, of uh, I, I use the phrase often, you know, like there's, um, there's a quote that I love from Woody Allen, which is 80% of life is just showing up. But I always add to that, but it's showing up at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Right. So you'll see people that they were in the right company at the right time. and They did financially really well and others that could be really smart, but they're not in the right place. Right. And then there's this other phrase that, you know, I'd rather be lucky than smart. Absolutely the case, but being smart, is about putting yourself on the on the right path of luck, right? You got to put yourself in front of the wave, mm -hmm. and so I think if you can be efficient about seeing the big picture, where the waves are breaking, uh, where opportunities are, and put yourself in front of those, you're going to do better because the the small amount of energy you spend 
has bigger impact when there's a moving wave. Mm -hmm. And all of us have probably tried to surf at one point or another in their life somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll know, like if as, as a wave is cruising across the ocean, there's three places you can be. You can be behind it, in front of it, or on it. And if you think about what happens to your own personal energy in each of those phases, if you're behind a wave that's already happened and trying to catch up, there's no way to do it. You can paddle as hard as you can and the wave's gonna move forward faster than you. You will never get on the front and drop on. If you're too far in front, you can paddle as hard as you want and nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. So there's a phrase that, that I used to hear early from Don Valentine of all people. Being early is a lot like being wrong, <laughs> right? So you just waste your energy and nothing happens. You know? But if you're in the right place on that wave, and we've all done this probably once if you've tried enough times, you paddle once and your board is moving. And like, whoa, big amplification of your energy and you stand up and you ride and it's at the margin easy. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do you, with whatever methodology you choose, how do you separate the signal from the noise? Because before every wave, there's a lot of froth, like or at the end, you know, and so you have to figure out how to put yourself in the right place so that when you spend that energy, it's efficient. And if you do that, you're, you're in flow state more often than not because it's just easy. Yeah. And this is, this is what like Taoist, Taoism talks a lot about is just essentially that you need to learn how to conserve your energy and only apply um, strategically when you actually place your energy at times where they'll be most effective. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And kiteboarding teaches you that too. Like if you've ever tried, did you ever try to windsurf? No. Mm -mm. Okay. So, well, so, you know, windsurfing, kite surfing, anything like that, you're basically dealing with heavy forces of nature. Mm -hmm. They're strong. And, and if you ever, yeah, I used to try to teach people to windsurf, you know, and uh, I, if it, when you windsurf, you've got that sail, you got to pull it out of the water and all this heavy, but mm -hmm. it, um, I would tell people, if you're able to control the sail when you're getting out of the water with two fingers, not gripping it like, you know, the death grip on a steering wheel, mm -hmm. then you've got it, right? Because the, the real key, as it is in life, is steering the forces of nature, not fighting them, yeah. right? I, I also use the phrase, you can't make a wave, you can only ride it. Right. So if you can harness the forces of the universe, whether they are wind or water or the energy flow and waves of technology or waves of business momentum when they do happen and you're in the right place at the right time, it, it happens for you. You have to just be in the right place and let it unfold. Mm. That, that, uh, that makes me want to ask you about like uh, blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin and how, because you got in real early, um, wh what about it made you think that that was going to be a big win? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, it, a, a lot of things that I work on are just out of uh, kind of like intellectual interest in the beginning. Huh. And uh, in this particular case, it, uh, it was because I was friends with a, a a guy named Philip Rosedale, who you might have met that started Second Life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of an odd story, but you know, back in like 2000, he approached me, I think in 99, 2000 through a mutual friend and told me he was going to build Snow Crash in real life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what Snow Crash was. And he says, you don't know what Snow Crash is? You have to read this book. And it's a science fiction book by Neil Stevenson uh -huh. that basically it describes 
kind of what the real world became with the internet, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and the story is basically about, you know, a guy with a computer, you can open up the screen, he drops in, his avatar represents him in the real world, and, and his character carries a sword, like all the characters in there, and, and, you know, they sometimes fight, and if your character gets killed, you get timed out, right? But at, at the end of the book, the character and the guy are so interwoven that his character gets killed and he dies. You know, it's a, there's a whole bunch of other stuff around it too. But anyway, so Philip actually went and built this virtual world that was an unstructured environment with people milling about. And we were in front of uh, what, what used to be the Paragon Bar in San Francisco, like at two o'clock in the morning after it closed one night and probably 2000, 2001 talking about what would happen in Second Life with all these people milling about. And I said, you know, Philip, think about like the city of Las Vegas. It sits on what used to be just like a pile of sand with nothing there. There's no economy, there's no manufacturing, there's nothing there. But now there's a city, how did that happen? I said, if you got 10 people to sit in a circle and you gave them one poker chip and said, pass it to the right a million times a year, everybody would have a million dollars a year of income. And if while it's swirling around, you could peel chunks out and build a casino, build a resort, build a hotel, you'd have a city like Las Vegas. And soon after that, the Linden dollar mm. was launched. Mm. And in Second Life, I, I had the character Alan Greenspan Gollum. And so I was basically this dude that was like, you know, kind of fascinated with the money supply. Mm. And so when, when the Bitcoin paper came out, in, uh, I forgot when it was, 2008, 2009, um, I, I had this little circle of people that just were interested in that stuff. And someone told me about it. So I, I downloaded the, the mining client and away we went. And then a little later, I started to try to buy some Bitcoin. And I ended up buying it from uh, a young guy that had dropped out of school in Finland. Mm. Um, and so I tried to buy a bunch through localbitcoins.com and some like, I almost got scammed a couple times here. And and then I started going through trust networks of people I knew, and I found a kid that was really good at mining, and I started buying from him. And that led to uh, uh, later, he formed, he was part of the founding team of Bitfury. And so as Bitfury, which was a group of people that really, really were good at mining uh, around the world in a kind of a distributed open source way, they formed a company and moved up this up kind of the computational curve from laptops to uh, graphics cards to FPGAs, and then they wanted to design a semiconductor chip. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trained as a semiconductor chip designer. So when they decided they wanted to do a chip, I was totally skeptical. Mm-hmm. But I wrote a check to fund them, mm-hmm. and then that became the you know one of the ASICs at Bitfury, and we went on to be, I think, 40 percent of the world's mining capacity for about three years, and. Uh, Anyway, so that's how I got into it, but it was a little bit accidental. And, and I actually, despite being in it really early, I was not convinced for sure that it was going to be here forever until about a year ago. Mm. And a year ago, the government of Japan declared it legal. Mm. And it was at that point that I said, a little series of genies coming out of bottles is now one big, big genie that is out. Mm. And it's not going back in wow Damn, that's really crazy yeah um, and it's been interesting to see like you know uh, even now like the government of japan very progressive and it's a big economy and it's uh i think it's you know it's it's gonna be hard to put it back in 
Um, and so the, from the story I just, I just heard you say, it sounds like you were very, very lucky as well. Um, and you were just kind of in this right place at the right time. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for people if they want to become more lucky or is there anything you can do or is it just kind of like, I think it's just been awareness. You know, I think I, I always had a fascination for distributed systems also. Yeah. You know, I think uh, because I worked on PCs when the PC industry was just sort of forming and, you know, kind of, if you think about what's happened over our lifetime, uh, we've gone from centralized to decentralized over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, so whether it was the computing business with mainframes going to minis and workstations and PCs to telecommunication monopolies going to ISPs and, you know, the fragmentation of the industry, now we're seeing it happen in the monetary system too. And, uh, and I think it's sort of just, you always just want to be on the right side of the forces of nature and aware of where the breakpoints might be. And if you're hanging around those areas, you're more, the, the chances that you get lucky go up a lot. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think this decentralization wave, it's been an interesting one because um, there've been times that, that I should have been luckier and I didn't act on it. And I'll give you that example, which is you know, when Vitalik was forming Ethereum, mm -hmm. He did approach pretty much everybody around that was funding stuff in 2013, 2014 for funding. And I passed yeah. because I, I was already in Bitcoin. and I didn't think it was going to work, but I steered a bunch of friends that way, which, you know, who, who, super lucky, a good kiteboarder friend of mine became the web developer for Ethereum, changed his life. Wow. But, uh, but I think as ICOs continued, I was still also very skeptical of those because I was trained as an equity investor for so long that I was like, well, why would I buy something? that isn't a voting share of anything it's like walking into like a casino in las vegas and buying a poker chip mm. hoping someone will buy the poker chip for me for more than i paid for it why would i do that you know? yep. mm. but i i finally got it and i think you know what, what I, the revelation i came to the two two vectors here one is what is an equity security a year you know years ago a share of stock measured on a price to earnings ratio seemed to have meaning Right. It might trade at 10 times earnings like a bond would give you 10 percent interest and you didn't get those earnings, but they accrued to a company. So it felt like it had value and had a vote. But as time has passed, what you see today is you had companies like Google and Facebook that offered shares with no voting rights or minimized voting rights. Mm -hmm. And then we got to the point where you had shares like Snapchat that have no earnings mm -hmm. and no voting rights. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot like a token to me, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, and then it just happened where people then started doing ICOs and then you get nothing. You could basically just get a token, you know. Right, they're communities of interest, just like Snapchat is, right? You know, and so, so and then if you think about the societal trend, okay, so if you were to Google search, how long have humans existed? It'll say something like 6 million years or 4 million years, depending on which source. If you think about humans in a, a construct of society, if you could call it society, we've only been organized as civil society for a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. So for five million some, just kind of, you know, people were random molecules in a giant fabric of humans around the world. And work, if you could call it that, if you said work is really just productivity, right? Your productivity or your work was totally just inspiration based as a molecule deciding what to do real time every minute of the day, right? You might fish with six people in the morning, 
pick berries with 10 other ones in the afternoon, hunt in the evening with five other totally different ones. You didn't have one job in a box. Mm. You had many jobs during the day, depending on what you wanted to do. Mm. It wasn't until the industrial revolution and the Henry Ford assembly line model that went with it, that the definition of productivity changed from decentralized to he who controlled capital to build the factory. Once you had a productivity model that was centralized, people lost their humanity and became a little monkey in a box, turning a crank, and they could only do one thing. They were trained to do one thing, and the model of flexibility was gone. But it's only been for your parents' generation and maybe their parents, but none before. Mm-hmm. Right, so only for about 100 years out of 6 million mm. have we been centralized. Mm. So the natural state is actually communities of interest. And so now we're at this digital world where people are molecules again, but they're not limited by geography. You could abstract yourself through Zoom and connect to a community of like-minded yoga people. Mm-hmm. So now you have this set of communities of interest that are virtual around the world that can come and go as they please. And you have value exchange amongst the people you trust in your community, whether it's a yoga coupon or an IPFS, you know, token for file sharing mm-hmm. or file storage. You know, so, so I think we're, we're basically redefining society mm-hmm. back to what it was for 5,999,000 years. Mm-hmm. And we're just going back to it with a little digital enhancement. And that's, you brought up a really good point about inspiration. Um, and like inspiration was the only effective or it was the only thing that inspired us to work basically or to do whatever we needed to do to just, yeah um and do you see now and that's what i'm starting to see with creativity and things in, in general on the internet that if you're going to make a lot of money you have to be inspired by no whatever. question yeah yeah um, uh how, do, how does inspiration play for you out for you in your daily life well, you know, and it's not just mine, right? So mine resembles, like, if you think about the work style of what people define as the millennial generation, mm-hmm. totally different from that speck of time that was a spike of centralization where mommy and daddy were locked into IBM for 50 years, turning a crank, right? Mm-hmm. And then laid it off at the end because the company needed more profit. Yeah. You know, so what you see today is people generally have multiple jobs, mm-hmm. right? So the youth of today work on this in the morning, they work on that in the afternoon, three days on this, three days on that. People prefer contract work to fixed work now. It's like I've seen surveys on that stuff. And so I think my work day is very much like that. I basically multiplex across, you know, chairman of the board of HUD-8, Bitfury directorship, chairman of Treasure Data. I've got like six or seven companies, active projects. I've got my kite serving stuff, my nonprofit, my professorship. And I, and this is why I can't have a structure. So I have to decide every day what's important and not calendar stuff because their contention for resources a few days out, months out, years out. And if I try to lock in a calendar, it's, it's totally not relevant at the time I get there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what life was like for 5,999,000 years. Mm -hmm. And how, how did you adapt to that or did you have to adapt to it? Has your work style always been that way or is it only recently? Uh, it, it's more, more and more. Mm-hmm. It's, so it was an adaptation. I think, you know, I'm, I'm of, uh, you know, Chinese uh, ancestry and ethnicity born in the United States. But if, 
Anyone here that's known American born Chinese people of this generation knows that they were like, you know, hit with the whip yeah. to be structured and get really good grades and be in Ivy League schools and have a plan. do what society tells. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and I was kind of like that. You know, I went to good schools, got a great education, kind of resisted it inside all the time, but did what I needed to do. But I think over a period of time, it just wasn't for me. And I, you know, I worked with in regular companies and, and, uh, and it just, I found it, I found it more and more as time went by stifling, given the societal changes that were happening as soon as, you know, like the, I think after the, in, in technology, which has been my basic career, I was, as I mentioned, I was trained as a semiconductor chip designer, the beginning of technology in my lifetime, of that type of technology was sort of centralized. You know, you had to have a few hundred people working in one place on a physical computer chip to make it work. And so that first wave was sort of a centralized, had to be there kind of wave. That was true of the next wave, which was building stuff out of those little Lego blocks, you know, so routers, switches, hubs, network gear, same thing, networks. It essentially the same thing until it got, got digitized. And once that infrastructure was put in place, and the value add and productivity layer shifted to the edge, meaning writing an application. You know, so the app economy. Once, uh, once it became a UI game, it became a game for creatives and the expression, right? So it's, it's how do the ones and zeros coming off the network look and act and feel that drive engagement or revenue. Mm-hmm. And that's when it all fragmented where you didn't have to be in a big company like Intel, you could be a kid in a dorm room at Harvard and start Facebook, mm-hmm. right? So at that point, boom, you know, all that. And, and now that's just increased and increased where now what you see is a gigantically distributed fabric of people, just like I described in, in uh, the earlier discussion mm-hmm. and waves of technology that are no longer from Silicon Valley. Like if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain stuff, it's not a US phenomena. It's not a Silicon Valley phenomena. You know, the vast majority of the innovation and creativity and all of the ICO and crypto stuff is not in Silicon Valley. If I had to estimate like how, what percent comes from Silicon Valley, it's probably less than 1%. Mm. And I'm really interested in, in countries because you, you know, like the things in uh, Kenya with M-Pesa and now and then BitPesa, and and in places where there is where they didn't have the history of centralization only up until about in the last 50 or years ago it seems like they're going to leapfrog the rest of the world in the way that they use these um tools and find these tools are you seeing anything like that or yeah that's happened that's already happened once before so if you think about the fixed line telephone business versus mobile like, you know, America and the earlier developers of fixed line telephony systems led the way in communications in terms of speed and quality of communications on landlines for decades. But when the mobile shift happened, it just took too long to dig up streets or if they had streets and lay all that shit in the ground. So the economies that grew up on wireless networks are far advanced relative to America. Mm-hmm. and other Western nations mm-hmm. in the usage and applications, you know, look at uh, like uh, QQ or, uh, you know, Tencent mm-hmm. and the payment systems and the, the use cases, people live on their mobile. So, so NTT Docomo was way ahead of us in the app become 
economy. Um, so I think that's now happening, as you mentioned, with companies in the financial segment, like uh, like M-Pesa. I think it's also going to happen over time in the energy space. Mm. You know, so I think uh, there there are amazing efforts to so so if you think about what's happened in energy, it was a centralized, largely a centralized uh, set of industries, but in the case of something like Puerto Rico, why should it be that a hurricane goes through and years later, a year later, you have millions of people without energy? Totally stupid. Now we're finally at the point where the marginal cost of production of energy off of solar is actually less than coal. Mm -hmm. So if Puerto Rico had had, you know, 10,000 little mini solar grids off of people's houses, hurricane rolls through, half of it's out, half of it's working. You know, it's, it's resilient, just like the internet is. So I think you're going to see things like in, in Africa, Akon, the uh, recording artist, he has, he's lined up $5 billion of bank financing for Akon Lights Africa. You know, so you, just like you're seeing gra grassroots foundational banking systems around M-Pesa, you're going to see a totally different approach to providing energy to this planet. And do you think those things that uh, they learn in developing countries will can then be applied to developed countries or is it separate spheres or separate? They come back, you know, so the mobile area, look what's happened with the iPhone. You know, I think it's, it's an app economy and, and that didn't start here. That start, that, that style of behavior started in Japan with NTT Docomo. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think the practices get, they, they, they sprout there. The innovation gets recognized and it comes back to fit, you know, cultures that are willing to accept it. I mean, America's culture, generally speaking, still has a, a flavor of risk and experimentation and acceptance of innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll always be able to adopt stuff. But I think the use cases in certain areas, because Americans aren't exposed to them, the, the needs, they never saw the needs that the people providing in PESA saw mm -hmm. that live every day, right? So I think we're going to see great changes in our generation, like I said, in energy, in water, uh, in banking and finance, you know, a lot of the fundamentals of life. Mm, it's really exciting. Um, and so to take it back to kind of your practice in your daily life, when you face stressful situations or when things aren't going your way, what are your strategies towards kind of um, moving through that stress or, or I go for a run yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I get on the water, you know, that's the first thing. And then it clears my head, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, I, I think a lot of my life is actually about, about the, the marginal decisions in life. Mm -hmm. I tend to steer them towards less stress, mm -hmm. right? Because I, 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 the world is such a big place mm -hmm. and there are so many things to work on and so many ways to apply your time. I think there are just so many demands on my time that at, if there's a little friction point somewhere, Generally speaking, there's 10 other ones that feel productive that have no friction. <laughs> and so my natural orientation is just to go and do that now because I shouldn't have to. I need to do it, you know? So, and then the stuff with friction, it either resolves itself or it doesn't. So I tend not to stress because things happen for a reason. If it's stressful, it was set up wrong. I was on the wrong way. Yeah. Mm. And so essentially you, you take it as a sign when there's friction or something like that, that what you're, that, that, that you're not actually spending your time on what you should be spending on. You should be spending it on, on, on the thing. Yeah. If it's market friction, you know, people friction is a different uh -huh. thing, but yeah. if it's like, you know, if it's, uh, if it's, if it's the, the markets are ready when they're ready. Uh, how, you do you, you, how do you deal with people friction? Uh, you know, I think, 
I think that's one where you kind of have to pick who you're going to hang out with in life. Yeah. And there are so many, uh, I, I, you know, there's so many people we all know. Um, there's just not enough time to spend with all of them. Yeah. So for the most part, I spend time with people that, that are additive, yeah. not subtractive, you know, and I, I think, and, you know, I think a lot of people recognize that they don't always act on it, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's kind of uh, just knowing what, what makes you happy, mm-hmm. being true to yourself and understanding what makes you happy. And then finding people that reflect that. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that enhance that mm-hmm. and not, not subtract from that. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So we got about five minutes left. What is kind of like one thing you're really excited about right now in your own personal life or something you want to share with our listeners or maybe just even like a book that you're reading right now that's really amazing? Uh, let's see. Um, you know, I, obviously there's so much heat around blockchain and the uh, applications of blockchain. And um, there's two projects that I am excited about today. And I'm working on them. We'll see, you know, there's, if, and if there's no friction, you'll see them be really big. And if there's a lot of friction, you won't see them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of them is just the concept, generally speaking, of, of uh, entertainment finance and movies. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, um, you know, the, one of the very first movie studios was United Artists, which was formed by uh, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and a couple, a couple of other actors that effectively did a crowdfunding to pull together the capital to produce films. Film finance today is sort of an, it's sort of uh, kind of broken. You know, it's sort of, you raise a shit ton of money, half of it goes to marketing. The contracts you have with the talent and artists are opaque. Oftentimes people don't get paid. The accounting is sort of fishy by the studios. So why can't blockchain provide clarity and transparency and breadth of capital acquisition and pre-distribution and marketing in a way by the token holders. Uh, so I've teamed up with the uh, producer of uh, the executive producer of Lord of the Rings and The Matrix and Great Gatsby and Waterhorse and The Chill and you know a bunch of these films uh, to think through what would a modern approach to the capitalization, the payout structure the distribution contracts look like if it were done with crypto tokens Mm. and on smart contracts. There's a really interesting um, phenomenon that happened in Brazil because Brazil, there was always music piracy. Um, And so in Brazil, they would only way that you could do concerts was to actually basically ticket sales and then selling merchandise at the shows as well, because as soon as they released the songs, they would already be pirated. So there's no way. So it's, I I think that's maybe something to look into as well. Yeah, the other area that I'm really excited about is um, some people know I just funded uh, as part of the syndicate funded CryptoKitties. Uh, cool. Yes, and what I saw there wasn't you know wasting not wasting using time pushing around digital cats, but I see CryptoKitties potentially as a way to to fundamentally change the way conservation is funded. Mm-hmm. And so I've been uh, working with them on a, on a concept to basically uh, center the behavior and the UI around, as an example, crypto rhinos, mm-hmm. where if we could basically create a new character, do a massive ICO marketed by brand name conservation groups, collect a pile of capital, 
to fuel field work to actually go out and collect DNA samples from 3,000 remaining rhinos. Mm. And then the people would build their rhino and then bid to basically match that to a real DNA source and then syndicate. You know, so you could basically have uh, a way to engage an audience with something that it's abstracted, but it represents real life. Cool. And then have, you know, funding and active like it's in front of you every day. So I think there's a way to basically, you know, start that potentially on rhinos, you know, work on elephants, primates. You know, there's, there's, there's ways to basically take the generosity that we've seen in the crypto community mm. and potentially save species on this planet. Mm. 90% of the destruction, I think, of, you know, of, uh, of the species that are endangered today, my guess, it's not, you know, it's, and it's uh, too blanket a statement possibly, but I'll bet that 90% of the destruction of those species has happened in one generation or two generations of, of humanity. Mm. And it's happening so fast mm. that unless something changes, they're all going to be gone. You know? And so we have this brief moment in time where you've got this confluence of new technology, decentralization, massive reach of capital, mm. and then ways to broadly engage an audience in a cause. And if, if you know, I can go to my grave having used this wave to do something to preserve some species for future. Mm. That that's all I need to do. And that's called crypto rhino rhinos. Oh well, it's crypto kitties, but where it would be a project. It's a project within the company Crypto Kitties to evolve. But the, the there's some debate. There's going to be kitties for cause. Mm. Uh, you know, using the cats to fundraise for certain things, but then there, if we can get our, you know, our act together and the waves right and all that uh -huh. on, uh, and the right other groups for distribution, you know, maybe it's rhinos, maybe it's elephants, but we, we want to pick a species that, um, that we can get the kind of the workflow right around and the right conservation groups involved and the right nonprofits. And if we can get that done right, I think it could be game changing. Mm. You might see something, you know, six, six months or a year from now. Depends on a bunch of stuff coming together. But, that, but I'm very excited about the potential of that. Totally. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much, Bill. This has been really, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, thank you.